Once more, would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, uh, we gather tonight to come before your word so we may study it, Lord, so we may submit ourselves to it, and ultimately, Lord, that you would minister to us through it, through the reading of your word, through even being uh, read aloud now, uh, that you are at work uh, in and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, uh, enacting your word to conform our hearts and indeed our very selves to the image of your Son. We pray this in your name. Amen. So our text this evening, we find ourselves back again in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 17. And this week, we are picking back up where we left off two weeks ago. But because it has been two weeks since we have been in the Gospel of Luke, I figured it might be worthwhile just in a couple of minutes to recap a little bit of the themes and the uh, unfolding theology that Luke is arguing for. Uh, you, can, uh, you can't pick up a, a novel uh, in chapter 13 of the novel and read and understand what's going on in the flow of thought. You need to really understand what the author is getting at from the beginning. And, and reading scripture is no different. If you pick up in Luke chapter 17 without really an understanding of what comes before it, a lot of what's being referenced or what is being enacted or unfolded and argued for will be very difficult to understand. Uh, there will be references you will miss. There will be themes that you will fail to grasp. And so uh, as best as I can in, in a couple of minutes, I want to just pull out some of the themes that get brought up here just so that uh, you don't need to go read 16 chapters first before you can uh, listen effectively uh, in this moment. So one of the things Luke is doing, he tells us at the very establishment of his gospel, that he is writing this, this text, so that we, his readers, and to his first reader, Theophilus, that we would have certainty about the things which Jesus accomplishes in his life. This is the thing that he is about. And so Luke is uh, exact. He is uh, very precise. And his argument is that you as a reader, through reading his gospel, through understanding his arguments, will have confidence that Jesus is who he really, who is who he said he was, and that really all the things that history tells us about him were truly recorded and events that truly did happen. Now, he says that, and then the very first thing that he does in his gospel in the first opening chapters is he tells us all about these two babies, these two infancy narratives, uh, John the Baptist and Jesus, and both of their births. And one of the things he does in, in that first couple of chapters is he develops to us this idea that Jesus is a king. Jesus is not born as a, a child to a poor family at, in, a, in a nowhere part of town just so that he can exist. Luke makes it clear to us that if you understand Jesus rightly, according to how he's telling us his events really unfolded, Jesus is to be understood as a king. John the Baptist comes to prepare the way of the Messiah of God, to come and declare that God's earthly king is here. And when John the Baptist points to this earthly king, he, he points to Jesus. He says, this is that king. Uh, and it's not just John the Baptist. In those infancy narratives, we have a number of people, prophets, prophetesses, uh, angels who come and declare that this is the Messiah of God. This is the one who will change everything. It's why even thousands of years later, we are gathered now today on a Sunday to remember this insignificant carpenter from Galilee uh, because he wasn't an insignificant carpenter from Galilee. He was the king of the ages, immortal, invisible. He's the only wise God. This is who we come to worship as we gather in the text tonight. This is what Luke's arguing for. But in the first couple of chapters, he tells us that Jesus is a king. 
And then in the subsequent dozen or so chapters, he, he proves that Jesus is a king by giving us a number of, of witnesses. One, he tells us about the teaching that Jesus teaches about himself. Jesus squares off against Satan in the wilderness, and then he turns around and he ministers in the synagogue. And what he's doing in all of that, he's testifying about himself. He's stronger than the devil. He can resist his temptation. He is the true interpreter of scripture because when he reads Isaiah's scroll and he says, today this is filled in your hearing, we say that he's, he's ministering truly. He's, he's interpreting this text rightly. And if you doubt that, one of the things he does in those subsequent chapters is he does all kinds of undeniable, unmistakable miracles which serve to testify that he is a man who has power and that power is recognized as the very handprint of God, the very fingerprint of God on his life. So if God is giving him approval and he is ministering and saying things that would be contrary to the truth of God's word, we would say that that would, be, that would, that would not be possible. As Jesus uh, says about himself, uh, he does these things in the power of God and thus the words that he says are also to be believed because, well, God doesn't support charlatans. God doesn't give power to people who are to deceive his children. He gives power to those who are to rescue and to save his children. You can consider Moses in the Exodus, who is given divine power so that he could be the witness to his people and the witness that God is more powerful than Pharaoh. And what Jesus does is one knock higher than what Moses does, because Jesus doesn't just say, I have come to deliver God's people. He says, I have come to deliver my people. These are my people. They belong to me. And so Luke is developing this idea that Jesus is a king. He, he is announced as a king. He develops his ministry and the understanding of a kingly context. And several times in Luke's gospel, we've seen this scuffle going on between Jesus and the Pharisees and even Jesus and his disciples, where there's this question about the kingdom of God. If Jesus is a king, he's enacting a kingdom. And if he's enacting a kingdom, what is this kingdom like? We've seen several chapters ago that Jesus's kingdom is an inclusive kind of kingdom because it's not just for Jews. It's not just for the wealthy. It's not just for males. It is for anyone who would receive him. It is uh, for the nations, for the people of the whole world who are to be found in Christ. He, he's a, an expansive and a inclusive kingdom that actually welcomes and opens its arms to prostitutes, uh, to tax collectors. As Jesus says, he comes to seek and to save sinners. This is who he is about saving. He's a king, and his kingdom is this group of people we would say is well, not very royal, not very kingly. But he's a king nonetheless, and this is what his kingdom is like. And more than that, we've seen him make the claim several times now, even in this text tonight, that his kingdom is among us. It is in our midst. He has said previously that if you see me casting out demons by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And here, once again, with the Pharisees questioning him, he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And that's why we're going to talk tonight about the kingdom being among us. What does it mean for the kingdom to be among us? And what is Jesus going on about? Because if we look today, uh, there's no castle where Jesus sits on a throne. There's no nation that you could point to and say that is where Jesus rules and reigns and enacts his laws. What is he talking about when he says he has a kingdom? What kind of kingdom is it? And what is it like? So we see in the text, uh, it starts with a question, question from the Pharisees. And we see that Jesus is asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus' response is something to the effect of, it's already here. Uh, bad question, bad timing. I've told you several times now, it is here. 
And he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Some translations, some earlier translators of the text would interpret this to say the kingdom of God is within you, uh, meaning within your heart, within your person. And that translation ought to be, I think, rejected for a number of reasons. But uh, one of them is that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the people who doubt his kingdom's advent. So it'd be a very strange thing for him to turn and say, the kingdom of God is in your heart, in you, when speaking to the Pharisees. If he was talking to his disciples, that could be a possible way of understanding it. Uh, it's, it's more likely that he's saying that the kingdom of God is among you, in the presence of you. Uh, it, is, it is in your lifetime. It is in your living that the kingdom is here. But he says it in two ways. He says the kingdom is here in the midst of you, but before that he says it's not coming in ways that can be observed. Now what he's talking about when he says the kingdom cannot become in ways that can be observed is he's talking about obvious and demonstrably, uh, demonstrably de undeniable movements of the kingdom. So uh, one, one way you can think about this is if you think about uh, a child growing up throughout their various uh, stages of life, especially in the first couple of years and then even on into uh, adulthood, a person living with that child on a day-to-day -day basis will not be able to point between one day and the next and say, there's been this demonstrable change. They are wholly different today than they were the day before. It's not, it's not, the child's not growing in any kind of obvious way, but the child is growing. The child's growth can be observed, but not by pointing to one cataclysmic moment, but by pointing to the, the totality of the child's life. Uh, in, in today's world where we have pictures, we can actually capture these moments where you can compare a child from, let's say, uh, one month old to 12 months old, and you can see the difference, the, the massive difference between those two stages of life. But uh, you, you could not go day to day and say, there is the moment in which this was a demonstrable change. The kingdom is, is truly here. It is truly in the midst of the Pharisees. Uh, but really, right now, it's, it's Jesus, a couple of disciples, a couple of women who are following him, uh, and, and not much else. So the Pharisees have a legitimate question, a legitimate doubt about the validity of this kingdom that Jesus is supposedly the king of. Uh, and nevertheless, uh, he says it's, it's now in the midst of you, but it's not going to be growing or coming in a way that you could point to and look at and observe. It is not this kind of cataclysmic event. The kingdom grows slowly. When I was uh, in my college years, one of the things that I had to do when I was a summer research assistant is I had to perform jobs in the lab. And one of the jobs that I had, uh, I, I got handed this before I really knew what I was signing up for, but I would sit in a microscope, uh, looking through slides and counting the number of cells, which you could see on the slides with a little finger counter, like one of those clickers, you know, you click, 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 and you have to reset it. And I would sit for seven, eight hours a day, and I would have a notebook next to me, and I would make these slides, I would look in the microscope, I'd look in the quadrant, I would count as many cells as you could see in the quadrant. You perform a multiplication to figure out how many cells density you have in this sample. Because one of the things you can't see with the naked eye is how many cells are there. <laughs> you can't see cells with the naked eye. You can't see it in an obvious way. And so how do you know that the cells are growing from one day to the next that you are, you are, you are growing? Well, one of the ways you do it is by looking through a microscope with a counter and doing all kinds of complex math to know, no, 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 the cells are growing. They're growing at a healthy rate. But you can't see that in an obvious way. You need extremely powerful tools to be able to observe and understand what kind of change is happening. So if you were to walk by the lab and you were to look at the glasses, the different kind of flasks that we were growing cells in, 
you wouldn't be able to see any demonstrable difference between the various flasks. You wouldn't be able to see any difference to your naked eye about the obvious difference between these things. But there was difference. The difference was not an observable difference, but if you had the right tools, if you were looking for the right things, you could actually observe the kinds of changes which were unfolding. And Jesus, is, his kingdom is a little bit like that. He's said before, his kingdom is like a little bit of leaven that slowly works itself out and leavens the whole lump. Or the kingdom grows like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of the garden plants. And eventually it grows to be the largest in which even birds can take shelter within its branches. The kingdom grows in a consistent and progressive kind of way. This is what he's, he's telling to the Pharisees. And the, the Pharisees represent one audience for Luke's authorship, one group of people who might be reading this gospel account. They are the antagonists, the people who want to deny what Jesus does, what he is about, what he's working in. And to the Pharisees, Jesus says, the kingdom's already here, the kingdom is growing, but just because you can't point to one moment, one spot in time in which this massive change happens, doesn't mean the kingdom isn't here or isn't growing. The kingdom is here and it is growing. And, and we even know today that there are many who would want to look at the church, even as it's unfolded over the thousands of years of its history, and say, this thing isn't all that impressive. This thing isn't all that expansive. This thing isn't all that influential. And so uh, we don't see a king here. We don't see a king who enact laws. Uh, we don't see a king in the way that we would want to define a king. And so therefore, there is no king. There is no kingdom. This is a conspiracy. And to that, Jesus says, it's not coming in observable ways. I told you that on the front end. It's already among you, but you have to look at it the right way. You have to understand what he's talking about, what kind of kingdom it is that he's growing. And so to those uh, doubters, to those skeptics, Jesus uh, addresses their concerns by saying, it's, it's a kingdom already present among you, and yet growing in a strange and unobservable kind of way. And then his second audience in this text is the disciples. And the disciples' danger is not the danger of the Pharisees to deny the advent of the kingdom, the danger of the disciples is to turn and to want to make the kingdom its final form now. To take the kingdom and say that we're going to make the kingdom of God present right now in our midst, in our day. That's the danger of the disciples. Uh, James and John are pioneers of this. You remember when there are people who are speaking against Jesus, they say, let's call down fire from heaven and, and destroy them. And it's not that Jesus can't do that or that's beyond the scope of what the Bible would allow. But Jesus' point is, that's just not appropriate right now. Don't immunitize the judgment of the kingdom. Don't immunitize this thing and make it present today. Because the kingdom of heaven is going to be growing in an unobservable way. This is something not only the Pharisees need to understand, but also the people who are in the kingdom of God, his disciples, need to understand as well. It is among us, but it is not something that is among us in an observable, pointed fashion. It is incognito. It is uh, growing slowly. And as disciples of Christ, we would be wise to also not immunitize the kingdom, to not force it to happen today where Christ is now visibly seated on his throne. And that's what we're trying to enact, let's say, in Congress or in the United States or something like that. So he, but he does give the disciples a number of warnings, a number of descriptors that tell us about the coming of the kingdom. And here, Jesus is engaging in prophecy. He's engaging in foretelling of what the kingdom in its coming will be like. Verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, 
don't go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples, one of the things he says is a marker of the coming of the kingdom is that first Jesus must suffer and die. He said this a number of times in his gospel so far. He has his mission in the gospel of Luke at this point is he's setting his face to Jerusalem to go and die for his people so that he could resurrect and give them a new life, a, a, a new hope, a, a liberation from sin. And here, Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, don't immunitize this thing. I have to suffer and die first before the kingdom can even come about. And then he gives them a number of instructions, which if you were to look up parallel accounts, accounts in the other gospels where these instructions follow, they all come into what's called the Olivet Discourse, a section of text in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and in Luke's gospel, it's sectioned off into this text in Luke 21, where you have all these kind of descriptors where Jesus is warning his disciples not to, not to be deceived by false messiahs, imminentizing of the kingdom, or his imminent return. And he tells them here in this text, uh, you'll want to see the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. And they, these people who are around you, will say, look there or look here. In the other gospel accounts, it's look, here is a Christ or look, there he goes. And Jesus is saying, don't be deceived by that. I have ascended to my throne. This is his instruction to his disciples. Don't go out and follow them. They're antichrist. They're false messiahs. Don't be deceived by them. For as the lightning flashes in the sky and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. It'll, his, his coming will be undeniable. All who will see it will not, will not wonder, did lightning just flash? It will be obvious. If, if you've ever been in a, a storm and you see a lightning bolt light up the entire sky, it's not a question at that point, did this just happen? It's, it's, it's obvious that it happened. It draws your attention. It draws your gaze. It, it centers your, your eyes. It, it resets everything. You, you know that it happened. It's an undeniable kind of event. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected. So this, happened, this is referring to his crucifixion and his burial, and his death, and ultimately his resurrection. But uh, the rejection aspect is the Jewish people rejecting him, crucifying him, killing him. And then he's, uh, he's saying that has to happen first. In verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it, will be, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Now, what does he mean by that? He's going to go on to explain. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. What he's saying is, in the, in the coming of the Son of Man, and when he comes in judgment, one of the things you're going to see, one of the things you're going to see is people are going to just be going on with their lives. They're going to be, uh, as, as he says here, just like in the days of Noah, remember Noah is a, a prophet who, who comes uh, to intercede for the world, and he, he tells the whole world, hey, God is going to send a flood in judgment. I'm building an ark. You come into the ark. If you believe and escape, uh, you will be saved. And everyone rejects him. No one listens to Noah. And so, and they go on with their lives. They go on eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. And yet, until the day when Noah enters the ark and judgment finally falls down upon the people, and thus in that moment, uh, the judgment is, is rendered. The, the time is up. The, the judgment is upon them. It's just like that. It's, people will be going about their business, not really concerned about the kingdom, and then it will strike them. 
And he's also going to compare it to another famous judgment, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. They're, they're doing their daily routine. They're brushing their teeth. They're putting gas in their car. They're getting groceries. They're doing chores. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife, in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, she uh, famously is fleeing the city with Lot and his family. And she turns around and looks back to the city. Uh, the text kind of alludes to the idea that it's because she, she really wants to be in the city. And when she looks back, she turns and she's turned into a pillar of salt or stone. And uh, he, he's saying, hey, on the day when the Son of Man comes in judgment and you're fleeing the judgment, don't turn around and look back to the city and, and think that there's hope for you there. There is no hope for you there. Now, this brings up an interesting question, and you might be wondering about this. How is it, how is it that the coming of the Son of Man can be like Sodom and Gomorrah, and how is it going to be like, uh, or how, how is he warning people to, to be aware of it so that they can flee it? So you'll notice uh, in the text, uh, verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down or take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let them not turn back. What he's saying is, if you're on the housetop, uh, and uh, you might have uh, grown up in school where you have fire drills periodically, one of the things that happens when the fire alarm goes off, you're supposed to Leave your stuff, not go get your backpack. You're supposed to file in the door, out the hallway to the nearest exit. This is the idea, right? When you hear the fire alarm, you leave. Now, we eventually grow deadened to that idea growing up in school, because by the time you're in high school, the, you hear the fire alarm go off, you first make sure your phone is on, you got all your music downloaded, you're gonna get your stuff, you're gonna make sure no one takes your stuff, you're gonna put it all together. You might even pack up for class and not come back. You just do, you just do all the things because, well, you know it's not serious. You've, you've kind of been drilled into the idea that this is a false alarm, this is a drill. And Jesus is saying, when you see the days of the Son of Man coming, uh, don't go pack up your stuff. Don't, don't go, just flee. Run for the hills. If you're out in the, in the field working that day, uh, don't turn back to your home. Run, flee. Now this, this brings up the question, what are they fleeing from? Are we to believe that in the final judgment, when Christ comes to judge the world, that one could, by means of geographic difference, escape the judgment which he is here discussing. Why would he warn people to flee if, if they could not possibly flee? Well, here uh, we come to a text that, that brings up all kinds of, uh, we would say hermeneutical, which just means how do you read and interpret the text of scripture, brings all kinds of difficulties. But I think this text makes sense because what Jesus is doing here is calling his shot. He is predicting ahead of time what he's going to do so that when he does it, Everyone's going to turn around and say, this man was a true prophet. This is what Jesus does all the time in, in Luke's gospel. He, on the Sabbath day, he's healing a man, and uh, he, tell, he looks to the Pharisees and says, which is more difficult, to forgive a man's sin or to heal him? The Pharisees don't want to answer the question. And so Jesus says, so that you know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, rise, walk. This is what Jesus does. He, he, he makes his power known. He makes his uh, authority known by his calling of the shots. 
One of my uh, current favorite athletes in the world is a man named Gordon Ryan. Now you might not know who Gordon Ryan is because he participates in a very niche sport called jiu-jitsu. And if you're part of our church, especially at the early days of Rua Church, you would know all about jiu-jitsu because, well, Max and I would talk about it all the time. <laughs> Gordon Ryan, in his jiu-jitsu career, is currently known as the king. It's his, it's his nickname. And he has that title because he beats everyone who he competes against. From the time of 2018 till present, he has only lost two matches on the professional stage, and everyone else he has beaten uh, with, with really out any kind of competition. He is a phenomenal jiu-jitsu athlete. He, he's, he calls himself the king. He's, he's got a bit of an ego like, like many professional fighters do, but, but he is the undisputed king. And one of the moments that kind of stands out as this almost mythical level uh, tale of Gordon Ryan is when he was entering one of the jiu-jitsu tournaments, and what he did before his match, he's competing in like the finals at this point, before his match he has an envelope, and he goes to the judges' table, and he hands them an envelope, then he goes to compete in the match, winning by submission through a triangle choke. And on the envelope is written, open after the match. And when the judges open the envelope, they, they unfold the piece of paper, and on it is drawn a triangle with his name, the king. And for him to prove to everyone in the world that he's strong enough to do whatever he wants to do in the jiu-jitsu stage. No one can compete with him. He has called his shot, and he has dominated the competition. This he does to show that he is the undisputed champion in this field. Jesus here in Luke's gospel is doing something similar. He's calling a shot. Now what shot is he calling? I think, and there are a couple of uh, interpreters who would agree with this, and you, you don't have to buy it just yet, but I'll walk you through it. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's calling his shot of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is to unfold in the year 70 A.D., now you might say, well, this sounds an awful lot like his coming in judgment at the end of human history, which all Christians would say he is coming in judgment at the end of human history. He comes to judge the living and the dead. This is what Christians affirm and what Christians believe. But there are a number of things going on in this text which seem to indicate he's not referring to that final judgment, but he is rather referring to a more near, a more imminent judgment, which is to unfold in the people of Israel in his day on the city of Jerusalem. There are a number of points which, which are worth noting, but the, the most poignant one is the one that I observed already. He's telling them that they can escape this thing. He's telling them to flee. And he's telling them to flee because I think it is possible that they could flee. In the other parallel accounts where these exact words are mentioned, the idea of as in the days of Noah or as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, those other parallel accounts actually stitch two events together. Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple and his his, his description of his coming. Now, what many interpreters struggle with is this idea that Jesus is either predicting one thing or two things or a, a whole bunch of things. But I think it's easiest to understand these texts as referring to Jesus predicting his judgment of Jerusalem, his destruction of the temple, which is to unfold in 70 AD. And the reason why is because this is his ultimate shot call. This is its ultimate prediction to say, after his resurrection and his ascension, his disciples will have been on the earth for 30 years at that point, almost 40 years doing ministry. And at the end of that time, people might wonder, well, was Jesus the real Messiah? And then Jerusalem is destroyed, and everyone recalls this one prophet, this one Messiah, who had a strange following, who, have a, who, who has a following still to that day. And they will say, there's one prophet who, when the temple was at its pinnacle, was at its height, was beyond any kind of contention, 
who said this temple will be destroyed. And this temple will be destroyed in an observable kind of way. The temple will be destroyed, and when it is destroyed, you will know, you will know that I called my shot. He calls it at the, the height of the temple's perfection. The temple is an unassailable part of the Roman Empire. It's one of the wonders of the world. If you were to look at the temple in Jesus' day, this would be like saying, well, it's, it's not a crazy thing to believe anymore, but this would be like saying at the height of the United States, at the end of World War II, the U.S. will be overthrown. And you'd say the U.S. is the current global superpower. Who's going to overthrow it? This is, this is what Jesus is saying. The temple, which is the building of buildings, it is the building which is undestroyable by their understanding. He's saying that building is going to be destroyed. And it's a local judgment, a local destruction, because people can flee it. Now, if you were to compare a cross-reference, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, there's a number of interesting reference, but particularly in Luke's gospel, Luke 21, when he observes these events, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, run for the hills, flee, get out of town. Don't go and try to grab your neighbor. Don't try to go get your stuff. Get out of the city. Because when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, when Jerusalem is surrounded by Rome, its destruction is near. Its destruction is coming. As he says here in the text, if you're on your housetop and you see the impending doom of Jerusalem, don't hide in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is what's going to be destroyed. Uh, this, this, is, this is like saying to someone who's in the siege on the, on the day of a, a, a battle, uh, don't hide in the safest observable place. Actually escape that place and, and go out into the wilderness. You're better off there. It's, it's a strange instruction, but it's an instruction that is heeded. Because what happens when Jerusalem is surrounded in 70 AD, or really in 69 AD by Titus, the Roman centurion of the time, the Christians observe his surrounding of Jerusalem. The Christians flee Jerusalem. The Jews stay in Jerusalem because they didn't believe Jesus or anything that he said. And Jerusalem is destroyed. And with it, almost one million Jews die as well in the siege. But Christians survive because Jesus said, Jerusalem is not a safe place when the siege happens. You must flee the city. Now, he says at that point, remember, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, it's a city that's going to be destroyed. Don't look back. Don't have your hope there. Get out of town. And then verse 33, he continues, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. What, he, what he's saying there is, if you hide in the city where you're going to seek to preserve your life, you are going to lose your life. That is not a safe place to go. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, this is teaching which is iterated elsewhere in the text of Scripture. The idea being to preserve one's life is a, is a kind of selfish thing. And Jesus says his followers are actually the kind of people who are okay with death because, well, he goes before them into death. He conquers over death. And so they are actually preserved in death. So don't seek to preserve your life. Rather, be willing to give your life over because that is how the life is kept. That is how triumph is won. In verse 34 and 35, also draw from this kind of siege language where it says, I will tell you in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. And there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. This is similar to what he has said about the uh, marrying and giving marriage. People will be buying and selling, eating and drinking. The idea is, you know, people will go to sleep at night and they'll wake up and destruction will be upon them. Or two women will be working at the mill grinding, grinding flour and one will be taken and the other left. Now this language happens in the Old Testament. When a, when a conquering people comes into a city... And what they do is they take a part of that city as captives, as exiles into their reign. And so what they do is they leave some people and they take some people. So he's saying, 
when this thing comes upon you, it's going to be like that. The city's going to come in destruction. They're going to take some exiles. They're going to leave some behind. One will be taken. The other one will be left. This is the idea that the, the destruction of Jerusalem is like these other destructions where actually, in many cases, the language is almost identical in echoing the destruction of a city. And then he says to them, uh, or they, they say to him, verse 37, where, Lord? He says to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So they're saying, where is this going to take place? Right? T- he's talking about a local destruction. They pick up on that and they say, where is this all going to happen? And your translations say, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Some of you might have a footnote on the term vulture there. And it could also be rendered as the, the term eagle. Where the corpse is, there the eagles will gather. The symbol that Rome has in all of its legions is the symbol of an eagle. It's what they fly on their flag. It's what they have on their banners. The eagle comes, surrounds Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem. When you see the eagle, you know the destruction is upon them. Jesus is calling a shot. He's predicting what the kingdom will be like. Now, you might ask the question, how is it that he's answering all these different questions? Because this this discussion about, let's say, if this really is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, this doesn't really seem to have much to do with the address to the Pharisees. Let me try to bow that all together for you. When the Pharisees ask the question of the kingdom coming, uh, they ask it in a a doubting posture, and Jesus says, essentially, it's it's present right now, and it's not going to be growing in an observable kind of way. And then when, his disciple, when he turns to his disciples, he gives instruction. He, he gives them an instruction so that they might have confidence that his word is true. And he tells them of one of the ways where the kingdom will make a, a step forward, where the kingdom will make a, a progressive step. And when they see it, they will know with confidence that his word was true, that he was the Messiah, and that he spoke truly about the unfolding events. That is, when the disciples and the apostles and the the Christians of Jerusalem in 70 AD, during that era, when they see Jerusalem destroyed, it is the confirmation, it is the vindication that Jesus was really the Christ. Because, well, if anyone missed his resurrection and the speaking of the resurrection, you can't deny that Jerusalem is destroyed now. The wonder of the world is now fallen. And this is the ultimate declaration that it is Christ and his sacrifice, which is the final sacrifice, there is no more need for an earthly temple. There is no more need for a sacrificial system. There is no more need for rabbis to interpret the text for you or for the Pharisees. This is God's divorce of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees, of the Jewish religious institution to say fully and finally, my judgment on them is obvious because they are apostate. They are not me. They are not my people, as he says in the book of Hosea. The idea is that when God's judgment is rendered upon Jerusalem, it is an observable sign to everyone watching that it is because Jerusalem has left their God. And that would be a sign also to the Christians that, well, he actually is, he actually is yours. It is a sign of confirmation because when the Jewish people are destroyed, when, when the Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, the, the idea is that, well, for all, what about all the Jewish Christians, as the book of Hebrews tells uh, There's all these ethnic Jews who leave their Jewish faith and become Christians, and they're feeling this strong temptation, this strong urge to actually turn back to Judaism, because Christianity is this weird sect fringe of people that no one even knows if it's legitimate or not. No one knows if it's a cult. No one knows what's going on with Christianity. 
And for all these Jewish people who have uh, apostatized from Judaism and become Christians, this is a confirmation that they made the right choice, that they made a, a good choice by their departing of the Jewish faith to actually not really depart from the Jewish faith, but actually to receive the Messiah of the Jewish faith, who is the Christ. And Jesus says this all 40 years in advance of its happening. Now, there's another question which we need to address, which is why does Luke separate in Luke 17 these events from Luke 21, where he has the rest of his discourse? Because if you were to compare Matthew and Mark and these accounts, they just kind of keep it as one continuous discourse altogether. So why does Luke separate them? Well, Luke probably separates them because he's telling us all kinds of things about the kingdom. And then the question naturally arises for a reader. Well, when is this kingdom coming? How can I be sure of it? And so he includes this section to both affirm the kingdom's legitimacy, but also so that we today, as readers of Luke's gospel, might not be tempted to some cataclysmic destruction to confirm to us that the kingdom is real or that God's word is true because his, his sign of his coming, his sign of his destruction of Jerusalem has passed. It, it has taken place in history in 70 AD. Now we might then ask the question, well, what does that have to do with me today as a Christian? If all of this is in the past, uh, is there no future judgment to come? No, uh, there is a future judgment to come. And Christ speaks about that all the time, all over the rest of the text of the New Testament. Just because this is talking about his destruction of Jerusalem does not mean that he is not coming to judge the living and the dead. Uh, we could look at Acts 17 or 1 Thessalonians 4, or even the idea, the understanding of 1 Corinthians 15, where we know that he is coming in a resurrected body and he will resurrect people before the judgment. These, this, this truth abounds that Jesus will come in his final judgment. But just because Noah's judgment wasn't the final judgment of Jesus on all, all history doesn't mean that Noah's judgment doesn't help us understand the final judgment. Just because the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't the final coming of Jesus doesn't mean it contradicts the final coming of Jesus. It points with momentum forward. And just because 70 AD wasn't the final coming of Jesus doesn't mean it un, un, uproots everything about the coming of Jesus. They all point forward to this anticipated judgment at the end of the age, at the end of history. They all build momentum to point us to what that final judgment will be like. Will it be like Noah? Yes. It will be climactic. It will be destructive. And only a few will escape. How will it be like Sodom and Gomorrah? It will be destructive. It will be divine. It will be vindictive over the people who have rebelled so uh, egregiously against their God. And it will be like 70 AD. And that many who would call themselves the true children of God who would claim to be the very people of God, would be the ones who would have God's judgment destroy them because they were truly apostate. They were really not of the faith. So will be the Son of Man's coming at the end of history, church. When he comes, he will judge the rebellious. He will judge the apostate. He will judge all men who have rebelled against him. But he will call his people unto himself. They will be spared. They will be saved. As he says elsewhere in the other Gospels, he longed to gather Jerusalem together as a, chick under, as a chick would gather her hens under her wings, but they were not willing. Well, for all who are willing to receive him, he actually does gather them under his wings and protects them from the judgment. He protects them from destruction because he is a good God who will not suffer his people to be destroyed, 
but who will rather protect them, who promises to resurrect them, and who promises to sustain them into eternity. So here, let me propose to you in closing an eschatology, meaning a a view of the days of future that all Christians can get behind. Because eschatology is a a topic that divides many Christians. Here's a view of, of Christ's coming that every Christian can believe. As the Apostles' Creed says, I'll start there, he will come from his throne to judge the living and the dead. The final judgment is real. It is to be accepted and expected. And scripture agrees with that testimony. Secondly, although he will come then as a felt king, he currently reigns as a true king. When he ascends, he ascends to his throne. He reigns right now upon his throne. When he comes in judgment, it will not move him as a status from not a king to being a king. It will simply be the manifestation of the fact that he is the king. He is the king now. He will be the king then. And his movement in judgment will simply be to make that even more undeniable. And finally, his coming in judgment will be like his judgment in Noah's day, like his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, like his judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD, and that you shouldn't be looking at a newspaper or the news clippings or reading books about prophecy of the end of times to think that you can put a date on a calendar to predict when this thing is going to unfold. People will be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and then the judgment will come. Noah. People will be buying and selling, eating and drinking, and then judgment will come, Sodom and Gomorrah. People will be on their housetops or at work, and judgment will come, Jerusalem 70 AD. Are we to expect his final coming to be any different? Everyone will be about their business, unimpressed with the unfolding of the world, unimpressed with the development of the kingdom, and the king will come. And this is, this is what it's like for the church today, because if you were to take someone who's not a Christian, who's outside of the church, and you were to try to tell them that Jesus is a king who's coming in judgment and he's currently reigning as a king, the first question would be, where is the empire? Where is the address? Where can I go? And in some sense, it's a rather unimpressive and unassuming bunch of people that we would call the church. He reigns and rules over his people through the ministry of the word, through the ministry of the spirit, and we would say through the proclamation of the gospel. This is a kingdom that does not grow by military conquest, It does not grow by uh, overtaking and subserving and, and destroying other peoples. It actually grows by the conversion of lost people. It doesn't destroy, it actually uh, rebirths. It is the kind of kingdom that in its advancement, in its proclamation, in its preaching, uh, we can actually as Christians, and the New Testament refers to us as this, as soldiers in the army of God. Uh, you might have learned little children's songs that go to something to that tune that we are marching in the army, the army of the Lord. We are soldiers in his army, but that doesn't mean we take up weapons and arms to advance the kingdom of God. It means that we take the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of truth. And and we go forward with the gospel, armed to the teeth with all of what Christ has taught us to a lost and dying world, to proclaim to them a kingdom which is already and not yet. And we do so not so that we can declare their destruction, but for their hope of their redemption. So that we, when we witness to our neighbors, to our friends and family, when we, when we tell them of the glorious hope of Christ's coming, it is not 
so that they would be destroyed, but so that they might heed the warning and, and be embraced as a child of God. Because here is the phenomenal thing about the kingdom of God. When it comes over a, an area, over a locality, over a people, it does not destroy all of those outside of the kingdom. It actually offers redemption. And upon the hearing of redemption and the receiving of Christ, people are actually engrafted as full-blooded citizens into the kingdom of God. That as Paul says, there's not, there's not a slave or a free. There's not Jew nor Greek. There's not male or female. We are all one in Christ. We all have equal value, worth, dignity, respect. We are all created in his image. There is no distinction in worth and value in this kingdom because we are all adopted sons and daughters of the king. There will be no hierarchy. There will be no division. There will be no human kind of... Uh, separation, we will all be fully born citizens into the kingdom with privilege, with respect, with dignity, with value, because we are sons and daughters of the king. This is what is phenomenal about Christ's kingdom. There is no kingdom like it in history. There never was a kingdom like it in history, and there never will be a kingdom like it in history. And this is the kingdom which triumphs over every other kingdom. Because as the New Testament concludes in its testimony about this king, that it is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us, for your kingdom which is already in our midst. And yet, Lord, we pray as you taught us to, your kingdom come. Would you bring it about through the ministry of the Spirit, through your members of the body, and Lord, in unobservable and unimpressive and humble ways, would you establish your throne forever, upon which you reign and through which you rule. We ask and we pray this all in your name. Amen.